This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. This is definitely data that we need to start looking at. It's definitely needed to understand this because we know, you know, that women experience some mental illnesses such as anxiety and depression and PTSD disproportionately to to males. Welcome to FemPower Health. This is Georgie. Today is the final episode of our enlightening three-part series on the evolving world of psychedelics in healthcare. In our previous episodes, we delved into the current legal landscape, safety protocols, and the vital role of education for clinicians, discussing policy, ethical practice, and cultural considerations in psychedelic-assisted therapy. Today, we're joined by Andrew Penn, a clinical professor at UC San Francisco, who shares his profound insights into the use of MDMA for treating PTSD and psilocybin for major depression. Andrew brings to light the complexities, challenges, and potential of psychedelics in mental health treatment. Join us for this riveting conclusion where we bring together the critical aspects shaping the future of psychedelic therapy into our healthcare system. All right, Andrew, I'm so, honestly, in all seriousness, I'm so excited to connect with you. I know you're a very busy in demand person. I was, I'm just really appreciative that Lynn Marie had introduced us. You came highly recommended by a bunch of sources. Um, and honestly, I, I got into, I had decided to do an episode on psychedelics. And then I started talking to some folks and I realized there's no way that I could cover this um, with justice in one episode. And so it's turned into a three-part series and honestly, it could probably be a 20-part series, but for the purposes of, of FemPower Health, I think three parts should be sufficient. And if, of course, there's more questions, we can do follow-up. So I really appreciate you making time. Why don't you tell us about yourself and, and you, how you got into this field and what you're doing within it? Because I do think it's so unique and interesting. So please share that with us. Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Andrew Penn, and I'm a clinical professor at UC San Francisco in the School of Nursing. I'm trained as a psychiatric nurse practitioner. I uh, did that uh, about 20 years ago now. And I divide my time between teaching uh, in the School of Nursing. I teach uh, advanced practice nursing students, so people that are going to become psychiatric nurse practitioners. Uh, I work at the San Francisco VA doing clinical work and overseeing residents there. And I also spend part of my time doing research on psychedelics. So that's a, a very interesting and very robust area right now. Uh, worked in the past on the uh, the MAPS-sponsored study of MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD, and also on the uh, USONA-sponsored study of psilocybin for major depression, a single dose of psilocybin for major depression. And more recently, I've been working on some small trials that we're doing in our lab, looking at people with bipolar 2 disorder who have depression, treating them with a psilocybin intervention. Also recently completed a small trial of people with depression and Parkinson's disease. These two, the two studies I just mentioned, the bipolar study and the Parkinson's study are important. Uh, Even though they're small studies, uh, those are two groups of people that have largely been excluded from trials to date. And so we want to see if we can begin to uh, see if there's evidence for safety in those in those populations as well. And then we're getting rolling on a study of people with uh, chronic low back pain and are gearing up to do a study of uh, young adults with anorexia nervosa, uh, all of which we're, we're addressing with a psilocybin-assisted therapy intervention. I mean, this is honestly just such a fascinating topic for me. I know that Michael Pol- Pollan has written about um, psychedelics, which I think has helped people, I guess 
make it feel more mainstream, so to speak. There's a lot of hope and a lot of hype around this space right now. And part of the challenge, especially for somebody who is new to it, is is sort of separating the wheat from the chaff. Um, but even for those of us who've been in it for a while, it's we're finding that you know, many of the subjects who come into our lab um, have have real big hopes for this, which I understand because we don't have uh, the treatments that we have right now for a lot of mental health conditions are not as effective as we would like. So I, I fully understand the the need for better treatments. Uh, it's just we're still in a very early stage of this. So there's a lot of things that we just don't yet know. And that's just the nature of science. That's okay. You know, that's why you do science is to try and try and answer those questions. But um, in the absence of data to answer these questions, we're finding that a lot of people are engaging in kind of rampant speculation. And that's creating a lot of challenge and a lot of a lot of sort of noise in the space that's difficult right. to cut through sometimes. When things are out there, especially now with social media, people pick up on it. And we're in this quick fix society where we're not really diving deep into things and we're making a lot of assumptions and let's face it. I mean, I know when I was going through my four years of fertility treatments, you kind of get in the underground because you're trying to find an answer. And so, you know, in light of kind of that tone, what is it that you want people to know that we're not discussing, especially for those who are more on the open-minded, I'll try anything side, perhaps because of fear and desperation in trying to get help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I certainly understand the motivations for for being interested in this. You know, as, as I was mentioning a minute ago, the the uh, shortcomings of the current mental health system leave a lot of people either untreated or undertreated. You know, they're partially treated, and they they you know they might feel better but not well, and that's an important distinction. Um, and I think where where there's some challenges in the messaging around psychedelics. I think there there was this early notion that this could be sort of a one and done treatment that, uh, you know, you hear this phrase, oh, it was like 10 years of therapy in one day. And yes. I, I really think that's over promised on a number of different levels. Um, so the data that we're seeing right now is towards as to the regards to the durability of the effects of the treatment, they vary. But, you know, the reality is probably this is something, you know, if we look at something like psilocybin for major depression, uh, the, the durability might be six months to a couple of years. Uh, and, and then the person would probably need to be retreated. And in the early studies that we saw of this, we were seeing people who you know, would go several years out and still say they didn't feel depressed, which is great. And there will be people like that, but I'm not sure that's going to be uh, that's going to be the average response. So, so I think one sort of myth to unpack is this idea that this is one and done and curative. And, and, you know, frankly, I was part of that hype at the beginning too, because in our very early studies, that's what we were starting to see. But the nature of, of, of doing clinical trials is that you are, um, you start with a very kind of cherry picked group of subjects who are, are, um, you know, likely to be able to, that you can treat them safely and, you know, that they're, they're kind of ideal patients in some ways. And then as you get into larger studies, what we call phase three studies, there's, there's, it's more representative of what real patients look like. It, it's still not perfect because there's a lot of things that we exclude people from that have complexities like other medical conditions, other psychiatric conditions, uh, comorbid substance abuse. That So we exclude those people from phase three studies usually, but that's who represents our real world patients. And so there's always this challenge in sort of translation of, are you going to get the same benefits with uh, the people in real life that you got in the clinical trials. And, you know, we've seen this time and time again in psychiatry. We, when SSRIs first came out in the 1980s, you know, people talked about curing depression because in clinical trials, they, they were so robust. And then we bring them out into the real world and we give them to people who have you know, medical issues or they have an alcohol use disorder or what have you, and they don't work as well. I think not because they're not going to work, but I don't think they're going to work as well as they are sort of currently promised. And they and and the way that they will work is going to be 
different than what we're used to. And I think this is an important thing to understand is that a lot of our treatments that, that we use right now, say common antidepressants, they are effective for some people. You know, there's, there's, it's very fashionable in the psychedelic space to kind of make a straw man argument about SSRIs and talk about how, you know, there's not many of them and they don't work very well. And, and there's certainly some truth to that, but they do work very well for some people. And we're going to need both. We don't need to, we don't need to ha- eliminate one with the other. We, what we need is more treatments, not fewer treatments in, in psychiatry. And so uh, this will be another option, hopefully. But the way that they work, the way they affect this change appears to be somewhat different in that things like SSRIs generally tend to kind of blunt negative emotions. Uh, and they sort of turn down the volume on anxiety or depression. The downside is they have, uh, they, they tend to turn down the volume on other emotional experiences as well. So people on SSRIs will say, well, you know, I don't feel as depressed, but I just don't feel as much of anything. You know, I used to cry in sad movies. Now I'm just finding myself not feeling it. Um, and so there is this, this, uh, challenge with them is that they they sort of dampen people's emotional experience which if you're depressed is is not a, necessarily a bad thing but it's different than how psychedelics work so psychedelics tend to be you know sometimes the term is non-specific amplifiers and so they turn up whatever happens to be present right now for the person and so they they tend to uh, take somebody's emotional experience, and when they're done in this, when they're used in this more therapeutic setting, they they often are really will con- that that person will be confronted with whatever it is they're dealing with, and that often gives them an opportunity to to work through that, to feel more confidence in feeling those feelings because you know we spend a lot of time as human beings trying to avoid feeling what we are feeling. Um, something called experiential avoidance in the psychology literature. And psychedelics are really counter to that. So they really tend to amplify whatever emotional experience the person is having. And this is one of the reasons why uh, good preparation is so important. Uh, So before, you know, just to be clear for people that have not heard of this work before, you know, sometimes people ask me, uh, well, I just go down to um, Walgreens and get LSD. No, 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 no. So the what so what we're looking at here is, is a model where this is really a psychotherapy model that is catalyzed, amplified, if you will, with uh, the judicious use of a drug, one, two, maybe three times. So instead of taking a drug every day, you're having this preparatory psychotherapy process with the therapist, sometimes two therapists. Those same two people are going to be in the room with you when you take the drug and you have all day kind of carved out for that. So you got nothing else going on that day. And really during that dosing day, we encourage people to go inward. So the other misconception a lot of people have is that we're sitting there doing, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy for those whole eight hours or something. No, most of the time when people are under the influence of the psychedelic, they're not really talking very much. And in fact, we encourage them to have this kind of inward experience. We provide eye shades and we have a pre-selected set of music that people can listen to, to really direct their attention inward. The drug will wear off after five, six, seven hours. And then starting the next day, we begin doing this thing called integration, where we talk about the experience that the person had, try and unpack that, look for opportunities possibly for them to change something about the way that they're engaging in their life, their, the way they're thinking about themselves or thinking about their, um, their circumstances. Um, and we might repeat this process depending on the study protocol in the MAP study, we did that three times. In the USONA study, we did it just once. So there are these different models of doing this. But um, it's just important to understand that sometimes that psychedelic experience, it's its not all rainbows and unicorns. Um, it often can be quite challenging. It can sometimes be, it can be quite beautiful, but it can also be dark. It can be scary. You know, in a, something like a PTSD study, uh, we get the agreement of the, the subject. We, we, this is part of the preparation of if your trauma doesn't come up during the session, can we bring it up? Um, because we're going to spend some time talking about that. 
And that's really, really important because a lot of times people with PTSD spend an inordinate amount of energy trying not to think and feel about the traumatic experience. And so we want to make space for that uh, in this therapy specifically. So the, so those are some of the, so the differences. The other thing that I think people need to understand is that um, while psychedelics are largely physiologically safe, you know, compared to say something like an opiate, which in large enough doses repress, suppresses breathing and, and you can die from, psychedelics generally have a, a high margin of physiologic safety, but they can be psychologically challenging. And especially if they are used in settings where people don't have the support of somebody who knows what they're doing when that person is in that state, especially when somebody is taking this in a societal context in which these are um, against the law, where people can lose their their job over this, for example. So that engenders a kind of fear around this, um, where um, people who are having a difficult experience might be apprehensive about seeking help for that, you know? And so, so this idea that these are without any potentially negative side effects, I think is untrue and it's, it's misleading people. Um, I think about that recent case of the airline pilot who had ingested psilocybin a couple of days before. And then, you know, uh, when he was on the the plane had this experience of what we call in psychiatry derealization that things weren't real and that that's that was his rationale for for pulling the fuel cutoff switch uh, switches on the on the on the plane um you know that was somebody who was clearly having a challenging psychiatric experience that was likely secondary to recent ingestion of of psilocybin was he on psilocybin at the time no because psilocybin doesn't last that long, but he was experiencing some challenging effects following that. And I wonder, had that might that situation been different had that person had more support and a place where he could talk about those experiences before he had to go back to work? So, so the, the, the I think the the misconception I want to clear up is that you know while these are relatively safe physiologically, they do come with some potential attendant psychological challenges that can be mitigated with good support and a good structure to support that person in. And that's, so you can't necessarily replicate these things by finding somebody who grows mushrooms and taking this on your own. Now you might, I mean, we don't, we haven't tested that. We haven't studied that um, to compare if the two are comparable, but you know, there's, there's a lot of people who are kind of charging ahead of the science. The culture is charging ahead of the science laws are starting to charge ahead of the science. And, you know, as a scientist, that concerns me. Like which, which laws um, that are charging ahead um, are most concerning to you? Well, I see a lot of well-intentioned laws around decriminalization. So to be clear from the outset, I think drug prohibition is a totally failed public policy. The idea of putting people in prison for changing their consciousness is bad policy. It doesn't work. Um, that said, sort of letting the floodgates open and letting the commercial sector come, you know, or even the sort of de facto commercial sector come in and offer, say, something very powerful like psilocybin widely without much guidance or without, without a culture that has an ability to absorb that. You know, we don't have good messaging around what is a safe setting to use psychedelics in? What is an appropriate dose? How long should you plan for? Those are all public health messages that we need to have out there to go along with something like decriminalization. And there's this kind of urgency to get this stuff out there um, in part to correct the wrongs of the past, which I fully support and appreciate. Um, You know, I do think that we as a culture can develop an adult relationship with this in much the same way we have with cannabis. So, you know, 25 years ago in can in the U S you know, cannabis was still this largely prohibited substance. You know, a lot of people went to jail for it. Um, people still go to jail for it, you know, particularly people of color, particularly marginalized communities. It's often used as this kind of cudgel to, uh, to, to harm people with, uh, you know, with, with legal repercussions. But I think in the last, 
you know, now I turn on my social media and I'm getting ads, you know, for cannabis uh, and not just CBD, you know, I'm seeing you know, THC and Delta nine and Delta eight and Delta 10 THC being sold, you know, in social media ads. So, you know, clearly we've, we've come to a different relationship with that. And I think we can do the same thing with psychedelics, but it's very early days still. Okay. Interesting. So you mentioned that you're looking at bipolar two. Um, I have a particular interest in this because, um, and Lynn Marie and I were talking, I was like, should I say this? She's like, well, when you share, that's when you open the door for others to, to feel comfortable. So I will share. So I have bipolar two and, um, it sucks <laughs> like really bad. Um, I have to like monitor so many things. Like the biggest one is sleep. Um, like what time I go to bed, how much sleep I get. And sometimes I can't control it because I've hit menopause. And so it's just like all these layers. And, you know, I actually um, had done an episode on cannabis and someone sent some to me and I tried it. And I don't know if it was COVID, perimenopause, you know, having my son and no one around to help during COVID, or if it was the the cannabis, I went nuts. And I was like, I am not touching this. It sat on my shelf and expired. Um, and so I think about like this study. And so one, I'm like, how in the world do you do it? What is the risk? Like, can someone have a psychiatric break? Because I've been on all sides of the stream of mental health having this. Um, and so I'm, I'm so curious about like, the precautions, what you're seeing that you're allowed to share, like how would someone in these states where it's like, I would so want a solution, but I also see when it's bad, it's scary that I'm like, no way. <laughs> so I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, for your listeners, it, it might be worth just briefly differentiating out these different bipolar numbers. Please. What do they mean? Yep. So, you know, when pe bipolar disorder is historically something called manic depression and bipolar one disorder is where people have periods of depression and they also have periods of what we call full mania. So in, in full mania, somebody for, for many days at a time, you know, often sometimes several weeks at a time will have periods of a very elevated energy. Um, sometimes it can have kind of a euphoric or grandiose quality. People get lots of ideas and, and they'll often be talking very fast. They, they might sleep you know, an hour a day, maybe even not sleep at all. Um, and after a while, it really starts to, um, people's judgment becomes impaired. They can become impulsive and, and, um, and it often ends with a, a really rough depression, which can go on much longer than, than the, the manic episode. So these manic episodes are usually kind of, uh, infrequent visitors, but people spend a lot of time being depressed. So that's bipolar one. Bipolar two, which you're talking about, Georgie, is where, um, somebody, it's really a, a condition of chronic depression with kind of a cyclical quality. So the depression will come and kind of come and go. And, and we differentiate this from depression in which is, is sort of a response to outside events. So people with bipolar disorder often will have, they'll fall into a depression and they'll have no idea as to why. Uh, because there is, it's not reacting to something in the outside world. It's more a reflection of their internal um, biology. And, um, and they spend a lot of time being depressed. And the reason it's still, it's not just called major depression, which is what most people think of when they think of depression is because of these periods. So there's a cyclical pattern to it, but then there are these brief periods of what we call hypomania and hypomania is where somebody for maybe a day or two has an increase of energy, you know, maybe a week, um, an increase of energy, but it's often not very pleasant. It often can feel kind of restless and agitated and anxious, Am I, am I describing this accurately? Yes. Georgie? Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, you're not able to sleep, but you, 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 but you're exhausted, you know, it's kind of wired, but tired. It's not, it's not a good feeling at all. There's, there's not a lot of enjoyment in those, those periods at all. Um, and so the reason why we're, we've been cautious in the trials to date around bipolar disorder is that there are case reports. I've, I've written one, uh, that's in the literature, um, myself that of people getting uh getting either having mania or having psychosis type symptoms so when i say psychosis you know feeling paranoid feeling like maybe things aren't real feeling uh, like people are trying to harm you um, those sort of uh, distortions of reality 
if you will, consensual reality. And um, there are reports of people with bipolar disorder having these episodes elicited by uh, psilocybin and other psychedelics. And so when you start doing clinical trials, you're, you're exceedingly cautious in who you allow into the trials in order to maximize safety. And then as you begin to develop um, some knowledge base around for whom this is safe and whom it's not safe, which is just as important as knowing for whom it is safe is knowing who, who can be harmed by a, a treatment is then, then you can start to kind of uh, work on those edges. Right. And so, so the reason why we chose bipolar two instead of bipolar one is that, you know, we want to make sure that we don't, um, we don't make people worse, you know, is really the short answer. Um, ideally we want to help people feel better. Um, so in a pilot study, which is what we're doing, you don't have a placebo control. So we know what we're giving everyone, everyone knows what they're getting. Um, and we're looking more at the safety signal than the efficacy. If we will look at both, but really the first question to answer is, can we do this with a small number of people without making them worse? And we're very early in the study, so we haven't we haven't actually um, analyzed the data yet. But it'll be interesting to see if we can do this safely. Um, so that's that's the question that we're working on right now. And if we can do it safely, then that creates the sort of foundation of of evidence that we can then go on to do larger studies uh, with more people, maybe with a placebo control uh, to try and control for some of those expectancy effects that we talked about around Michael Pollan and, and then really start to see if this can be something that helps. So, you know, th these sort of insights help people understand, like, why does this take so long? This is why. Yeah, no, it's true. And, you know, and I hope you, you find something because you're right. It's like, I, um, I even talked to my therapist and I'm like, today I'm like on it. And so this is the day where I am like tackling my list because I don't know how long it's going to last. And I'm still very productive. I've luckily, I've never like sat down and like had to like crawl into bed for three days. I've never been like that, but I'll struggle to like do things the way I normally do. And I used to never be like this. And so it's incredibly irritating because I literally have no idea. So I just, I'm like control sleep, control what I eat. And I hope for the best. <laughs> Each yeah. Every day. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, you know, and, 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 you know, you're certainly not alone in that. And I think for people that struggle with that or, or any really, you know, kind of chronic episodic illness, which affects your ability to function. Part of the burden of that is that unpredictability, you know, what's tomorrow going to bring? I don't know. You know, will I be able to do these things that I plan tomorrow? I don't know. You know, we'll see what tomorrow brings, but it, it's, it, it definitely is part of the challenge for sure. Do you have either anecdotal or data, um, anecdotal evidence or data around menstrual cycle timing or even phase of life? Because like, for example, when a woman is in perimenopause within a given day, the hormones are all over the place, much less over a given menstrual cycle, however long that menstrual cycle chooses to be at that point in time. Um, you know, and then obviously when and there's all these added layers. Like now a lot of women are undergoing fertility treatments. You're given additional hormones. So there's all these like hormone related activities that are happening. Um, like Lynn Marie even said, is there a certain time of the month where if someone right. is on a regular cycle, it's better to give it than not. So what, what do we know so far about that? I think the short answer is not enough, not a lot, not enough. Um, and, and some of that is, it, it's not willful neglect. I think it's, it's just a artifact of the relatively small sizes of these studies so far. And, and that most of these studies are focused primarily on uh, creating the evidence that would be necessary for getting this to the FDA and having FDA approval. Once you have that approval, it becomes a lot easier to do studies of of, of different populations, right? And so, you know, if you just if so, if we were to look at something, so one of the larger studies uh, that was done recently, there's been two what we call phase two uh, studies of psilocybin for major depression. The one I worked on, I think we had a hundred and eight subjects, something like that. And the one that was done in the UK had a little over 200. So if we say, you know, roughly half that population is uh, identified female at birth, you know, we've got a hundred people um, or 50 people 
and where you know that question of where they are hormonally at any given moment um, is another large variable. And so this is definitely data that we need to start looking at. You know, I think it's it's definitely needed to understand this because we know you know that women, for example experience mental illnesses, some mental illnesses such as anxiety and depression and PTSD disproportionately to, to males. And so that's, that's one big challenge. Uh, and one, one area that we, you know, this is a, another underscoring why we need better treatments for this, uh, for these conditions is that, that uh, women suffer from them disproportionately and we need better treatments as and we also know that biologically there are these these closely tied relationships say between estrogen and mood uh progesterone and mood serotonin and estrogen tend to kind of track each other and so you know there are these fairly uh, predictable uh mood experiences that that people have you know in the premenstrual phase for example or postpartum and so there's a there's a huge need for this for sure and then understanding, I mean, there was, um, I do believe in the MDMA study phase three that female sex did predict a better outcome for people that were randomized to the, the MDMA group. I'm not sure what to make of that, but you know, that, that I think is encouraging news, especially given that the women are, uh, over twice as likely to experience PTSD in their lives. So, you know, and then there's, there's a whole nother subset of, of understanding that we need to, to gather around, uh, around transgender, uh, patients, you know, and, and how does hormone replacement therapy impact the effects of these and, and are there, should we be thinking around timing? You know, I think your point is well taken that that the effects of these may um, may be attenuated by where somebody is in their menstrual cycle. Um, there is Natalie Gukasian at um, at Hopkins did an interesting case series of, of of three women talking about changes in their menstrual cycle following psychedelics, um, and so you know, there may very well be a signal there. But you know, we are really just in very early days with this. There's you know, we need better funding to do the research so we can really begin to explore these questions uh, on, on a large scale. And I know it's harder, more expensive, and takes longer for women, but like they're half of our population. And so there are, there are reasons to be hopeful around this. Um, yes, of you know, so, so psychedelic therapies could be included under a broader umbrella of what we might call rapidly acting antidepressants. Um, and so this would also include things such as ketamine, but also, uh, you know, a drug called Zoranolone, uh, which is a, um, is an oral version of, of a drug called Brexanolone, which was, uh, FDA approved maybe about four or five years ago, uh, which Brexanolone was a, was an IV, uh, infusion, uh, rather kind of cumbersome to, to give and to obtain for postpartum depression. But Zoranolone recently was given FDA approval uh, as a, a treatment for postpartum depression. Um, and it's, it's not an SSRI. It works on something called GABA receptors. And, um, you know, it has a rapidly acting antidepressant effect. And so, so that is, I think things such as that are really promising um, because that, because postpartum depression is, has really been an area that, that we don't, you know, like many areas of in mental health, we don't have treatments that are as, as rapidly acting and as robust as we would like. I'm curious, you know, in the recent trial where the PPD drug was approved, um, I'm curious if you had any thoughts based on your research and experience with these different um, mental health conditions about why perhaps the um, major depressive disorder wasn't approved, but postpartum depression was. So just the backstory, backstory for those who are unfamiliar. So Zoranolone was, was simultaneously being investigated for uh, both uh, postpartum depression, but also uh, major depression, you know, so not, not necessarily related to uh, childbirth. And uh, it did not have, uh, it did not succeed in the, in the major depression study, whereas it did in the, the postpartum depression study. So the FDA approved it for, postpartum depression, but not for major depression. It's, it's difficult to know, you know, it, it, you know, it may be that, um, that the hormonal changes that are, uh, attendant to postpartum depression were, uh, were better addressed with, uh, this drug, which is essentially a, a version of allopregnanolone. Um, and you know, that may have been why it was, it was more robust. I mean, I, I think of just really kind of 
um, engaging in a lot of speculation here, but but you know, unfortunately, the, the data did not support that it it worked in major depression. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that that may be an artifact of the way the study was designed. You know, sometimes when when you um, have these sort of disappointing results, you go back to the drawing board and you say, okay, was there did we do something wrong here? You know, was the dose insufficient? Was the treatment not long enough? Um, do we need to look at those kind of things? You know, do we need to you start looking at at various populations in your in your study and see if there's a if one group did better than another. You know, so sometimes you see a sex difference in in the, the the data, and so those would I think all be the things that you go back and look at after after study is unsuccessful. So, are there any known contraindications for psychedelic use? that people should be aware of. So we know you we talked about bipolar 2 it's being studied <laughs> or for bipolar generally. Um, but what about any other known contraindications which is hey, you know, I heard this, I'm fascinated, I'm going to one of these retreats. Um, you know, or I have a, a place where I know to use it safely and I know XYZ about myself, therefore I definitely should not be using it. Like who who would that be? Yeah, well, you know, I don't, I don't want to give medical advice to people that I, I don't know, but I can tell you what we, the things that we, uh, some of the things that we exclude in our, in our studies, um, definitely people that have a personal history of psychotic, of any psychotic illness. So somebody who's had a history of schizophrenia or by, you know, bipolar one, particularly with psychosis, um, or has a first degree relative with, with so a mom, dad, brother, or sister with, um, with psychosis uh, in any form, we would be very cautious about and, and often exclude. So, you know, that's because there is a genetic component to um, many of these conditions, and, and sometimes people can have some of the, uh, the the genes which are associated for risk for that condition. Uh, and so, we I would be we'd be very careful around that. Um, the other area where where we're ex- uh, very cautious around is people with cardiovascular disorders. So things such as psilocybin and MDMA do cause transient increases in blood pressure and heart rate uh, when the drugs are, are are in effect. And so uh, we're very careful with people that have uncontrolled high blood pressure, uh, or have congestive heart failure, um, have arrhythmias, uh, cardiac arrhythmias, have heart valve problems. Uh, those are other areas. And then the other thing that we control for in these studies is that uh, in many studies, uh, medications are discontinued. Um, and sometimes that's because they directly interfere with the effects of the drug. So for example, um, we haven't gotten too much into the weeds of the neurobiology here, but um, classical psychedelics, which is sometimes referred to as LSD, psilocybin, DMT, uh, which is the active ingredient in ayahuasca, um, those are um, those have part of their effects are mitigated by something called the serotonin two A receptor, and so the a, a drug that blocks the serotonin two A receptor, so something uh, such as like trazodone or a whole class of medications called atypical antipsychotics. So this includes things like uh, Seroquel, Zyprexa, Risperdone. Uh, those all block the serotonin two A receptor and would likely uh, mitigate the effects of a psychedelic that works on serotonin 2A. So it would, it would probably dampen the effects of that. Um, there are other drugs that we uh, have contraindic- that are contraindicated, which means that, that we, we take people off them before they ingest the drug for safety reasons. Um, the sort of the most uh, important one probably in that area would be most uh, antidepressants should not be combined with something called ayahuasca. So ayahuasca is a is a, a brew that originates from the um, the Amazon, and it contains at least two different plants. One of which contains the drug uh, dimethyltryptamine or DMT, and the other contains something called an MAO inhibitor. And so MAO is an enzyme that breaks down uh, things like serotonin and norepinephrine dopamine in your body. And the reason why this brew has uh, both the psychoactive plant and the MAO inhibiting plant is to prevent the ayahuasca from being broken down in the the DMT and the ayahuasca from being broken down in the gut before it has a chance to get to the brain. But that creates a potential risk for something called serotonin syndrome if they're taken with um, 
an antidepressant that works on serotonin, like a Prozac, a Lexapro, Zoloft, something like that. And so generally people need to be off of those medications for some time. And it varies from medication to medication, depending on how long the med stays in your body generally um, for, for some period of time before they were to ingest ayahuasca. That's a really important safety uh, precaution. Wow. So what is serotonin syndrome? Serotonin syndrome is essentially when you have too much serotonergic activity, mm -hmm. serotonin activity uh, in your central nervous system. And so people, it can manifest um, in the form of like jaw clenching, teeth grinding, uh, shivering, difficulty um, monitoring your um, your body temperature, which is the, the biggie, the big risky thing here is that people can get hyperthermic, um, something called malignant hyperthermia, where people's body temperature gets very hot, um, and they have difficulty cooling it down. Um, serotonin syndrome can result in, in seizures. It, it, it can actually be life-threatening. So it's something that, that you have to be careful with, uh, particularly with these drugs that work on serotonin. Um, and, you know, you can see serotonin syndrome-like symptoms in people that use um, excessive amounts of MDMA in one, in one setting. That's a, that's a known risk with MDMA. Um, it can also disrupt uh, things such as your sodium levels in your blood, which can lead to swelling in the brain. This is, these are uncommon side effects, to be clear. Um, but it's also one of the reasons why, you know, back in the, the old rave days, you know, uh, there were there were issues with hyperthermia because people are often dancing in hot settings. You know, we don't see that happening in our clinical trials because we're we're monitoring people's temperature. So that doesn't seem to happen when people are not ingesting this in a in a hot environment and then exercising in the form of dancing. But one of the things that was sometimes happened back then is people would drink excessive amounts of water, uh, which can lead to something called hyponatremia, which is where you sort of flush out a lot of the sodium in your, your bloodstream. And that causes all sorts of disruptions, including uh, swelling in the brain. So, you know, while people want to, you certainly want to remain hydrated under something like MDMA, you don't, you shouldn't be drinking you know, gallons and gallons of water. That's, that's not a good practice. I would love to summarize like what people who are curious should do if, if they're truly interested. And then I want to conclude with like what you're excited about in the near future. We've, we've had a cautionary tale in this discussion. You know, it hasn't been psychedelics are the best thing around. Everyone should be on them all the time. Forget pharmaceutical medications. And I really appreciate that because I, I do think um, with the way media clickbait, you know, all these things, people, I think, take things to a certain level. And look, I'm one who will try anything, <laughs> but even I'm listening, I've, you know, I've interviewed three experts now and I'm like, wow, I'm kind of sold on being really careful. I think there's sort of a both and answer to that question, right? So, you know, I'm, I'm obviously very interested in psychedelics. I spend a lot of my waking hours thinking about it and talking about it and writing about it. Um, so I, I wouldn't do that if I didn't think there was promise. Um, that said, I want this to succeed. Um, and I want to follow the data and, and, you know, the, the, the thing about science is that, you know, you have to follow the data no matter where it takes you. Um, even if it's not where you thought it was going to take you or if you're disappointed by it. Um, so, you know, in sort of descending order of probably safety and containment, the, the, the more difficult way to have one of these experiences, but probably the safest way to have one of these experiences is to enroll in a clinical trial. Because it's important to remember that um, with the exception of ketamine, which is we haven't really talked about, but uh, certainly can have very psychedelic-like effects and is also a rapidly acting antidepressant drug, um, that these the, the compounds we're talking about today, MDMA, psilocybin, LSD, these are all Schedule One drugs. So they're, you know, they are, as of right now, federally illegal to um, to possess or use. And so the only place where that can be done legally is in a clinical trial. The best way to find clinical trials for anything is something called clinicaltrials.gov. This is a government-sponsored website. It's not sponsored by a drug company. It's just National Institutes of Health. Um, and it is a directory of all clinical trials. It's as simple to use as Google. You know, you could type in there depression and psilocybin, and it will show you all the trials that are um, 
going on right now that are about to start or that you know you can limit the you can filter the results uh, by geography and at least gives you an idea of if there are studies going on that that might be of interest to you so that's that's this that's probably the um the safest way to do it you know now some states like oregon are developing these what they call adult access programs, adult use programs. So supervised use, not necessarily for a clinical indication. In fact, in Oregon, they specifically cannot say that they're going to treat your depression. So you you go to one of these experiences and it's kind of like, I guess, you know, like going to a yoga retreat, right? You don't need a, you don't need a doctor's prescription to go to a yoga retreat and your, uh, your work there is largely self-directed. And so a place like Oregon has uh, passed a law that, that, allows for adults to have a psilocybin experience in a supervised setting, which they unpoetically call a psilocybin service center. Um, but, but that's so that that is available to adults going to the state of Oregon. Colorado is also in the middle of a, of a bill that will allow some degree of access. And many states and local uh, areas are starting to to kind of dip the toes in the water of, of various forms of either adult access or decriminalization. Um, and then there are other countries where this is available, you know, Jamaica, Mexico, Peru, Holland, uh, where there is some, some form of legal access. And as I mentioned before, the, 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 um, those kind of settings vary considerably. So, you know, I would really strongly suggest somebody do do their research before um, and, and talk to people that have been to those settings before going into that. And also understand that we can't necessarily say with certainty at this point that we can replicate these clinical findings in these non-clinical trial settings. So if somebody says, well, you know, you can go to Oregon and take psilocybin for your depression and it'll work just as well as what we're doing at UCSF or at Johns Hopkins, we don't have evidence to support that as of right now. We haven't done that study. It's a study that really needs to be done. You know, we, we have seen from survey data that people that use psychedelics in a what we call naturalistic setting or maybe recreational self-directed settings, you know, often do report, uh, they self-report benefit and they also they also report a small portion of harm, so you know these are not without some degree of risk, but the vast majority of people report um, you know some benefit from them as well. So you know that has always been and probably will forevermore be one route that people experience psychedelics, and you know they, certainly people are within their rights to do that. It's just a little less predictable perhaps. Um, but if they are going to do that, you know, to really be thoughtful about how, where, and with whom they do that, you know, to have a place set up where you are away from the distractions of the everyday world. You do not want to be looking at your phone notifications while on a high dose of psilocybin. Um, you don't <laughs> want to, to be, you don't want to be in a place where you could fall down and get hurt in that state because, you know, you may not be fully, attuned to your body. Uh, you, you ideally want somebody there who can be with you and keep an eye on you and, and reassure you if you get scared. Um, so these are all sort of harm reduction measures that, that people can think about, you know, if they are going to pursue this sort of thing on their own, um, to, to be really thoughtful about how they do it, that, that, well, you know, certainly many people have had, um, delightful experiences at, you know, a concert or Burning Man or something like that. People also have really challenging experiences out there too. You know, anybody who's worked at a place like Zendo or Rockmed at a, at a concert, you know, knows that, that people have challenging experiences. It can be very just sensorily overwhelming to be in a concert with lots of people, um, lots of noise, lots of lights, you know, when you're, when, when your brain and your emotions are in a very raw place. And, you know, the thing with psychedelics, there's kind of an old adage that you don't always get the trip you want, but you get the trip you need. Yep. Somebody who goes to, you know, someplace like Coachella, you know, and decides to, you know, enhance their music experience with, with a psychedelic may get that experience. They might also end up thinking about when their mom died when they were 10 years old. And that's going to be a very different experience. And, yep. and it's not to say that thinking about when your mom died, when you were 10, it can't be, is, is necessarily harmful, but Coachella might not be the spot where you want to have that experience. 
So what are you excited about in the near future? What are you um, hopeful for and excited about? I, I'm really excited to see uh, the end of well, I'm, so MAPS is, is will soon be submitting something called an NDA, a new drug application to the FDA for the uh, for the approval of, of, of MDMA assisted therapy for PTSD. And assuming that is that is approved, that's when things are going to get really interesting, right? So nice. and really complicated because. Uh, we don't really have a healthcare system that's set up for this right now. I mean, we have we barely have a healthcare system that's functioning as it is. So, you know, to add this layer of complexity uh, is going to create some brand new challenges, which I think create exciting opportunities, um, but also are going are going to be challenging to navigate. Um, but I'm really excited at the idea that, you know, I'll share with you a story. You know, so when um, last time I had to take antibiotics, you know some crud i remember what it was but you know i remember like a day and a half later feeling like myself again you know and i thought damn i wish the meds i prescribed for people for psychiatric conditions worked this well right you know so the idea of actually i've been working in mental health for 30 years you know and i've seen a lot of people who i have great admiration for who are really struggling you know, and I really would love as a clinician to be able to offer more robust treatments that actually work better and that sustain that benefit over time and that help people develop a different relationship with these parts of themselves that are, you know, that have depression, that have anxiety, that have trauma, that, that maybe, you know, what we're, what we're doing here is not necessarily eliminating those things. It's not this kind of, um, you know, like we're going to cut that out of you sort of idea, but that you, you develop a different relationship with that aspect of yourself in a way that that reduces the amount of suffering. And I think that's, that's something that's so important. I'm also really excited as a nurse to see how uh, nursing is going to play a central role in this. I mean, I think nurses bring to this work a, a sort of a natural uh, skill set and a native sensibility for sitting with people, for making room for uh, for healing. Uh, that's really excited. I, I co-founded an organization called the Organization for Psychedelic and Entheogenic Nurses, uh, Open Nurses. Um, and I, I think nurses are going to be a really important part of uh, delivering this care and also scaling it because, you know, one of the challenges we're going to have is we don't have enough clinicians to deliver this therapy who have been trained in this. And so I have a vision where, where many nurses learn how to do this work and, and can sit with people while they, they go through these, these experiences, keep them safe and, and help them heal. I did read about, about the nurses program that you've started and it sounds wonderful. And I agree, Jordana and Jacqueline and I, which will be the first episode in this series, we talked about, okay, so now we have these approvals. Now what? Now what? <laughs> so yeah, yeah. so it'll be a really, it's a really interesting time to be in this space and um, it really hard, is. but interesting problems to solve for sure. The history of psychedelics is, you know, and the history of plant medicines in general, for which some psychedelics derive from, is really one that was largely occupied by women through much of history, and and the the people who have carried this knowledge forward and endured a lot of persecution for doing so have largely been women, um, and so you know I think it's just worth acknowledging that debt of gratitude that that we will all if these if we are successful in this that we will owe to those to those women who have very bravely carried this forward oh thank you maybe there'll be a, a documentary on that because <laughs> now there's you see all these documentaries where they're bringing forth like oh there's actually all these women behind the scenes that helped with all these grand moments in the world so thank you for acknowledging that next year my i'm hoping to go to saskatchewan canada um, because there is a nurse there named Kay Parley who worked with um, a psychiatrist back in the late 1950s, early 1960s, a guy named Humphrey Osmond. Humphrey Osmond um, has, did many things, but one of the things that he also did was coin the term psychedelic along with his friend Aldous Huxley. Um, and so Kay Parley worked in a large state psychiatric hospital there in Saskatch- Saskatchewan, Canada, using LSD with patients who had alcohol use disorder. 
um, in the early 1950s and, and late and beginning of the 1960s, well before this ever became known to the youth movement and Timothy Leary and all the stuff that happened later, there's a, a period of history starting with the synthesis of LSD in, in 1938, um, going up until 1970 when the Controlled Substance Act was written, of research similar to what we're doing now perhaps not as rigorous as the research we're doing now, but, but there was a lot of interest and a lot of what you might, you know, call sort of above ground scientific work looking at this. And so Kay Parley, she is now 100 years old. (laughs) Every time we correspond, she reminds me that she, she she says, well, I am a limited time offer, (laughs) but I've spoken to her on, on zoom and, and she's, she's sharp as a tack and, has some amazing stories to tell about this. So, so yeah, we want to contribute to the the history of this. That focusing um, some of these these women that my my friend and colleague Maria Mangini highlighted in a really fantastic paper called "Unseen Women in Psychedelic History," um, which I can't recommend highly enough. Yeah, and she talks about she talks about Kay Parley and a number of other women who have been really instrumental in holding this, but don't always get the uh, the recognition that they deserve. And wasn't LSD even discovered in a lab with the scientists with from Sandoz was actually trying to um, discover something for postpartum? Well, not for postpartum. Yeah. So the interesting thing, um, if you indulge me in this for a second, is that so L- LSD was derived from uh, ergotamine, which is a, a fungus that grows on rye and other grains. And interesting thing is that midwives have known about ergotamine for centuries because ergotamine was used as a uterine tonic. So it causes the uterus to contract. And so it was used um, by midwives in uh, so quickening of, 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 uh, of labor, you know, so people that were struggling to labor and also in postpartum hemorrhage to get the uterus to clamp down and, and, and cut off the, the bleeding from where the, the placenta detaches. Um, and they were, Sandoz was looking at this as uh, a possibility, uh, or ergotamines as a possibility as for something called analeptic. And analeptic was a drug that you, it was a respiratory and cardiac stimulant that you would give to people uh, maybe as they were coming out of anesthesia, which if you remember, you know, it was a fairly new invention. Um, thank yes. God for anesthesia, but you know, we didn't really have anesthesia until the turn of the 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 eighteenth eighteenth uh, century, eighteen hundreds into the nineteen hundreds, and and also to reverse barbiturate overdoses. So barbiturates, which were the the previous drug before benzodiazepines, were much more dangerous in overdose. Uh, it's probably a barbiturate overdose that that. Um, that caused um, uh, Marilyn Monroe's death, for example. And so this idea of developing a drug that would keep people breathing and their heart beating um, if they were in an overdose situation was the other thing that they were interested in in developing. They had no idea it had these psychoactive effects that it does. And as the story goes, that that Albert Hoffman, who was the the chemist working on this, accidentally ingested some tiny amount, you know, on his fingertips, you know, probably touched his mouth, and thought he'd poisoned himself actually. And it was actually his young uh, lab assistant Susie Ramstein who got him home on a bicycle. That's where the, the expression "bicycle day" comes from. It's an acknowledgement of the the day that LSD was was discovered to have psychoactive effects. Um, no way. She got him I home. Heard that yet? <laughs> it was 1943, so it was the middle of the war, and in, in in Basel, Switzerland, and they didn't have gasoline was rationed, so they were on bicycles. So they got home on their bicycles. Um, he he asked that she call his his doctor who examined him and found there's nothing physiologically wrong with him other than his pupils were very dilated. But, you know, he went on to have this rather fantastical experience that, that, you know, I think he was frankly, partially quite scared of, you know, he didn't quite know what he, what he stumbled into. After that, you know, Sandoz sort of had a, had a solution looking for a problem, you know, and they started to, to try it um, through sort of crowdsourcing, if you will, uh, to, to ask, psychiatrists to, to, if they wanted to work with it and to report back what they, they discovered. And so that's how, that's how we got LSD, which is really a, a wild accidental discovery. Like a lot of things in science, you know, Thank you so much for making time and for your dedication and for, you know, giving us the, the truth about this. Cause we want people to be safe and look, I'm all for trying new things, but we want to make sure that we, we tread with caution when necessary. So thank you so much for, for sharing the facts and your perspective. Thanks for having me, Georgie. I appreciate it. I enjoyed our talk.
All right, take care. Thank you for joining us on another enlightening episode of FemPower Health. No matter where you are in your journey, our website is brimming with content tailored to your specific topic of interest or life stage. Dive in and discover the resources and insights waiting for you. Your voice matters to us. And if you found value in this episode, please take a moment to write a review. Your feedback not only helps us improve, but it also helps others discover our podcast. By spreading the word, you're empowering women everywhere with the information they need to navigate their unique health journeys. And if this episode resonated with you, please don't keep it a secret. Share it with friends, loved ones, or anyone you believe would benefit from the information. Together, we can create a world where every woman feels supported, informed, and empowered. Remember, knowledge is power, and FemPower Health is here to guide you and support you in every step of the way. And as a reminder, the information shared by FemPower Health is not medical advice, but for informational purposes to enable you to have more effective conversations with your doctor. Always talk to your doctor before making health-related decisions. Additionally, the views expressed by the FemPower Health podcast guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Until next time.